0: got people all around you that don't look like you that didn't grow up where you did and they are your family. You do things with them all the time and you get to learn the stories of why their yeah. sauce is important, why gochujang is important. We kind of just put those people in that book to give you an example of, hey, this is who you need to go talk to. This
1: is who you can learn from. This is Taste. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Chris Shepard is a chef and writer based in Houston, Texas, and co-founder of Southern Smoke, a nonprofit geared towards helping members of the restaurant community. On this episode, we have a lively conversation about the food scene in his hometown, leaving his restaurant group, and his cookbook, Cook Like a Local. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Chris Shepard, this is Taste. How you doing? Fantastic, Matt. thank you for having me. I'm so happy to see you. I was down in in Houston. We were having you, and you, Lindsay, and I were having coffee. Yeah, and here we are in the podcast studio. A couple weeks later, I know it's amazing timing. It's great timing. Tell me about New York. You were just in town for the welcome conference. I want to hear about your your talk that you gave there. Um, but where do you like? Where do you go to eat right now? I want to I want to get a sense of where you when you land. Where are you hitting? Um, you know, it,
0: it was funny because when we got in, it was just such a Every day has had so many things that we've had to do, and so it's been like grab something real quick, do this over here, eat over here. Um, we we had a fantastic dinner at Red Hook Tavern, though. Mm-hmm. Um, I just love it. It's something that I'm really glad is here and not in Houston, because <laughs> I, I would go broke yeah. real quick, just because it's like that wine list is just beautiful, and it's well-written, and the food is delicious, and we would probably eat there
1: f- three times a week.
0: Two it, or three times. It's a, a week, beautiful
1: I mean you're walking down those those kind of quieter blocks of Red Hook, yeah. you enter, you know, enter that dining room. Yeah, it's very unique. Very and then cool when place. you're over there you gotta go by Sunny's. So yes. I mean, you just walk around the corner and go to Sunny's After and look hours. At, you know, look at the you know, Statue of Liberty and just yeah. enjoy the views. God, I love Red Hook. Red Hook is a, is kind of unchanged. I mean it went through a massive change in like two thousand five, but yeah. then it kinda of stopped. Yeah, it's just still the same. It's really cool. So you went to you went to Red Hook Tavern and what about Manhattan? Anything you Hit up anything? Uh,
0: we did pasties and then had lunch nice. at Bad Roman. It was good.
1: Yeah, yeah. Bad Roman. Now, uh, let's talk about the Welcome Conference. Influential, um, you know, all the movers and shakers um, hang out there yeah. for a Monday in, in this fall. And, and you, you know, you're given a talk. And and the speakers have given many talks about personal history. What was your talk about?
0: Um, being Better for Others was the name of the the speech. And, and I, I'll be honest with you, that's pretty much the only thing I wrote down. Um, <laughs> you know, people came really up, you went off the dome. Yeah. And, and I just, it was one of these things that, uh, you know, we talked about it and I've been thinking about what I was going to say, how I was going to say it. And, you know, it was really beautiful because they gave me the speech coach to, to talk with. And like, she kind of worked through things with me and, you know, it, it took about 30 minutes for the first conversation we had. And she's like, yeah, you're shoot from the hip kind of guy. Like yeah. it's just going to happen that way. And I was like, all right, you know, I am. And so as I started to watch, and the night before where all the speakers got together, and everybody's like, oh, yeah, my speech is 22 minutes, I had to cut down four, and, like, I had to cut a page out, and I was like, oh, wow. Like, yeah, maybe I'm doing this wrong.
1: You had a little bit of doubt when you're sitting in your hotel I room. Yeah. I had a whole
0: lot of doubt, and I sat at the end of the bed, and I, and I pulled out my phone, and I kind of wrote just, like, a set list in my mind. That's what it was, and it was like, I start here, I transition to this, transition to that, go to here, talk about this, stop here, you know, and... I sat and I looked at that. Lindsay, my wife, she just looked at me and she's like, you need to stop looking at that thing. And I was like, I'm going to get some note cards. She's like, no. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and you could see when people, it was very planned and very methodical and what they were saying and and how they were articulating it. And I, when it came my turn, which Will comes up to me and he's like, so you're the first one after the lunch break. I need you to bring the
1: energy. (laughs) <laughs>
0: 'Cause these people are just kind of full, they're coming back. And it was like, okay, well, no was problem. for lunch. Just as an aside. Anything good. I have you?
1: no idea. Yeah. Yeah. There's I I, I you
0: couldn't eat I walked good. out, there's eight hundred people standing there, and I talked to Lindsay for a few minutes and I was like, I gotta go. Eric yeah. Williams gave me from Chicago Virtue in Chicago, gave me the most amazing pep talk. Nice. And that's just Chef him. to Chef. Love yeah. That. And he's it we talked for like three or four minutes and then I looked down as I walked out and he's sitting on the front row, just like, let's go. And, you know, I addressed the audience right off the beginning, and I was like, I'm going to acknowledge my insecurities, and I'm going to tell you that I can't write down what I want to say because if I do that, it's going to sound terrible. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to shoot from the hip. I'm going to talk from my heart, and I'm going to tell you my truths and take it for what it is. And so it, it was more of a conversation about Southern Smoke, but more – people always ask, like, you started this organization – And how did you get it to where it is? And I was like, I I don't know the answer to that. But if you don't try Mm -hmm. and you don't break down those walls in your own mind, because you're really the only person that can tell you no, like everybody's going to doubt you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But you're the only person that can succeed to saying, I can't do this. And it's that's not the right answer. Right. Um, That's always, we talk about it like there is no try. You can't say, I'm going to try to do that because you're already accepting failure. You, you just do it, right? You just do it. Absolutely. You go through it, full tilt, and go. And so it was just trying to get people to unlock their heart so they
1: could hear their own minds.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And and um, I think we did a pretty good job. Do that. you remember a beat from the talk that um, resonated people, maybe, like, like, looked at you in a different way? Was there a moment? Is there a line that you can remember? Um,
0: you know, I don't know. Because <laughs> I started the conversation about talking— I told him, hey, I'm going to tell you about my insecurities. Now, Mm -hmm. I'm going to tell you a story. I need you to clear your mind right now. And when we get through with this, I'm going to ask you to hold my stress for me. And I went through a scenario that we dealt with as an organization um, where a gentleman was hit on a motorcycle. His fourth surgery was about to happen. Insurance said, you're done. And he still had that surgery was to replace the plate in his head, his, his part of his skull. And his mom was given the choice to come up with $100,000 or to put him into a high-end brain rehabilitation unit or to watch him pass and to put him into a hospice and watch him die. And uh, at that point, I was like, now, I'm going to ask you to hold that stress. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I started into another segment of the conversation then came back and I was like, when I started to describe what Southern Smoke is— you know, for us to be able to walk in within one day and write them a check for $100,000 so that she could save her son. And I'll never forget when Chris Bianco, uh, it's the one thing I feel bad that I didn't finish. I forgot because if I would have written it down, I probably mm-hmm. would have remembered that. Mm-hmm. But I, I was like, you know, Chris called me and said, hey, man, he's got a pizza joint. Let me come make pizzas for a couple of weeks. I'll help his restaurant stay afloat while he's in the hospital. I was like, Chris, it's going to be a long term thing. But I'm gonna call you in at some point. And last year at the festival, Danny's mom helped him stand out of his wheelchair, and he made a he made a pizza with Chris
1: Bianco. Yeah, and I just sat and I cried. That's a really moving moment. And yeah. I want to talk about something, to smoke, because it's an organization that has a real focus. Um, it helps workers in uh, in the food industry, but not just restaurant workers, but it could be in in fish, fishermen or butchers. And it focuses on emergency relief. The example you gave about the gentleman with the with the motorcycle accident, but also um, mental health assistance. Yeah, I mean we. Anybody in the food chain was where we wanted to start because what happened when we
0: started this organization, it changed at Hurricane Harvey in Houston for us in 2017. And there was so many, um, you know, we were just doing parties to raise money for an MS society because a friend of ours was diagnosed with MS. But in 2017, when Hurricane Harvey happened, everybody started raising money. J.J. Watt, the Mayor's Fund, mm. the Red Cross. There was hundreds of millions of dollars, but none of that was ever going to hit anybody in the food and beverage industry. Mm. Nothing like that was going to take care of a farmer, a drive through employee. Um, a person that stocks the milk, like whatever, it cooks, busters, waiters, nobody was getting any of that money because all that was going to go towards fixing the roads, yeah, fixing the Yeah, building yeah. houses. And that's great. yeah. But, you need roads. But yes. when nobody can get to their job, mm-hmm. how do people pay bills? Yeah. And so we figured out a way to, with our 501c3, to take on applications, to go through a verifying committee, and then go through an awards committee. And that year we had our festival. We had, I don't know, 18 chefs that year. And we took on 240 applications and wrote 139 families, a half a million dollars, just from that one. Just from that one moment, moment.
1: Yeah, yeah. That that festival. Wow.
0: And so we kept with that. Um, and so when when 2020 happened, you know, I'll never forget. We hired our second employee in February of 20, not really knowing what was getting ready to happen because none of us really did. And within. The first week of April, we had thirty-five thousand applications in nationwide, mm-hmm. and so it changed the way that we did things. and In, in twenty twenty, we granted out over six
1: million dollars. My gosh, that's yeah. incredible! And now you have a, a sizable staff. Yeah,
0: now we have um, twelve employees, I believe. Right, and so you know, and and
1: to date, now we've granted out over eleven million. So let me ask you, Chris, about the the way you you give out these checks. Because my understanding, we've we've met, we've talked about this offline before, yeah. but you know, you're giving. Checks of of a good size, but with frequency, yeah. you're giving a lot of five and over five thousand and over checks. How does how does that work, and how does that that help um, an individual in the food industry? These so checks, we we don't do
0: just like a traditionally, we don't just do a number, right? right. It's not like okay, pandemics here, everybody gets five hundred bucks. That's great, but when you're in the hole for five thousand, that really is kind of it. It's
1: like helpful, but it still like brings that pain. Yeah, right. Yeah, 500 is not going to really cut down 5,000 that that quickly.
0: And so we decided at the very beginning of this that we were going to go case by case by case. And it would go, if they were approved, they would go to a caseworker, and the caseworker would build the case for them, and then it would go to the verifying committee and the awards committee. And the awards committee would then decide, like, what that number was. Like, um, we had a case today, we were just talking about it at lunch, and This person needed, uh, I think it was $3,000 for uh, a medical procedure. But one of our case or ward folks said, I know what this is, and this person actually needs Mm,
1: $4,800.
0: So I I vote that we give them $2,000 more than what they need because they're going to be in a problem again. And we take applications once a year um you can go up for a renewal once a year and we want to get you out of trouble we don't want to just pay for the problem then we want to make sure that you are good to go for the long
1: term this is important it's sustaining yeah it is so because it's a sustaining so you can re up if you get assistance once cuz we know these some of these are long term yeah, they're long-term
0: problems, and yeah. we don't have a cap. So, like I said, we've granted anywhere from $200 to $100,000. Mm. I mean, we've done heart transplants. We give people teeth. We give them confidence. We've gotten people out of domestic violence abuse. You know, situations where we'll put them in hotels with the kids, make sure they get the food, the water, everything that they need, and then we'll help them and pay for them an apartment so they can start their life yeah. over again. And it's very important no matter what that is. We started working on it in um, 18, actually. Uh, at festival we pulled all the chefs together and we were like how do we make a change what is the best way to make a change in our industry and all the chefs kind of came to the conclusion was mental health and it was good that we did that because july of 20 was our first program that we instilled which we could give anybody in the food and beverage industry in the state of texas and their children free mental health care access wow through the university of houston and mental health america
1: so they can go in and there's an intake pause you know an intake process to, yep. to go through houston and you get Long-term? Anybody in Texas. And now we have that program in Texas, Louisiana, California,
0: Illinois, and New York. Okay. And so what we do is we work with the universities. We grant their psychiatric departments, and we have their Ph.D. students um,
1: that basically take care of people. And they need that those hours as part of their training. They need so their hours important.
0: to graduate. And yeah. the best part is we just met with NYU yesterday, and mm. they're so excited. They're our second university in New York. They just came on board this week. Um, and they're right. starting to take on some of our our, our applicants that have been in, in the waitlist because when we announced back in March that we started working with Yeshiva, um, it went on a waitlist in forty eight hours
1: and one hundred fifty people on the waitlist. That's. Let me ask you, Chris. I know you're going to be articulate. This is a tough question, but what are some of the mental health challenges that um, folks in your industry um, come across uh, through through work in restaurants? Yeah, I mean, really
0: well, difficult. I mean, just the stress of the job yeah. for one. Okay. The stress of you know, it's not a high paying job. And so, yeah. like, you're, there's always the struggle. Um, and, you know, you never know what's going through a cook or a busser or a waiter or anybody in the in the industry's, you know, minds, especially you work, you know, 14 hours a day. If you have two jobs, you work 16 or 18 hours a day. You get home. It's late. You know, you may go to a bar. You may not. But then there's, you, there's no time to turn down. And so, you know, and I always say that, like, 2 o'clock in the morning in your apartment by yourself is the worst place you can be is in your own head. Hmm. and And so yes. just knowing that there's somebody there that can help you and walk through things and and I think that mental health traditionally has a stigma to it and it's starting to not be, and I still think we need to work on that
1: yeah, I mean we've talked about it as an industry a lot about I mean mental health and also substance abuse and tackling both, but I think there's still a generation who misses the dialogue it's yeah. you can't you can't talk to everybody in the industry through conferences and through media because the folks maybe aren't a, Appearing at those conferences or yep. participating. And so someone has to say, stand up and
0: basically our industry has to stand up and say, it's okay. Yeah. Let's address the problem because if we don't, we
1: lose people. They literally lose their lives and we can't do that anymore. So we'll close the Southern Smoke Talk. I want to yep. find out a couple of things. You're having your, your festivals coming up in, in October, but October also 14th, October yeah. 14th. Um, I'd like to get our a sense. We'll link to in the show notes. What's the best way that we, as listeners, can can help you? Don't can donate and help raise funds.
0: So at Smoke dot org. Great. And and it's kind of a choose your own adventure type website. It's you can either help by donating. You can come to the festival or just kind of maybe through corporations. Take a look at that. Or you can apply. Right. It's it, it's two ways you it's can think about it. Yeah. It's you can apply there. You can donate there. And I've always said if you if you have a little bit, give a little bit. But if you need it, come get it. Yeah. And so.
1: It's it's kind of the way we do. Things. Thank you for for reminding us that it is a two way street. Yeah. and it, we're not just thinking about the fundraising side of it. No, I really appreciate you pointing that out. And, okay, and and it,
0: people will say, well, I don't know if I if I qualify. Just apply.
1: Yeah, that's all it really takes.
0: We'll tell you. We'll work with you. We'll figure it out. We don't we don't have a lot of red tape. In fact, zero red tape. If if we need to make something work, we make it work.
1: Is the simple requirement – are there a simple requirements? There are,
0: yeah. It, our only real stipulations is that you've been in the industry for six months. Oh, wow. And you've worked 30
1: hours a week. Okay. That's it, which I think in this industry is pretty easy. It goes without saying documentation does not Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Good. Does not matter. Good, good. Wow. Uh, yeah, because we're
0: not governmentally funded. We can pretty much do whatever.
1: Yeah, you're a 501c3. You have f- private funds. Um, and But you also have a – it sounds like you have a, a large staff who's helping raise money and we continuing do. this. So where do you take it in the next five years? Where does it go?
0: You know what? Um, I didn't know where we were going to be five years ago. So <laughs> I, I, I'm not one that can say, hey, we're going to be here in five years. I think that one of the things I want to get to is um, – you know, I said earlier, even last year, I was like, I want to be in all 50 states by 2028. I've said that for past few years and like – Four months ago, I looked at, you know, our director, and I was like, that's not smart, is it? And she's like, it's going to be tough. And I was like, we have so many people on wait lists. I don't want a wait list before we start taking on more. Yeah, It doesn't make sense to go into a lot of these states if we're not doing the justice to the states that we're in. So until we have two or four or however many universities in each state that we're working with, because in Texas, I mean— there's so many, even you can in New York. just do
1: Texas and yeah. just New York. And and well, credit to you and your wife, Lindsay uh, Brown, you know, for, for bringing this this topic to the, the surface. It's so important. Yeah. It's so important that you, thank you for doing it. Well, our industry is very proud. They don't it ever is, need anything.
0: We're always taking care of
1: everybody else. But you yeah. have to ask the question who's taking care of us? Let's segue. I want to talk about Underbelly Group and, and your restaurant. I love that restaurant. I love that restaurant. I'm singing, you know, uh, I love it in the present tense, in the past tense. We did a great a book event there for Koreatown back in the day. Yep. But you left the group. And I, I wanted, I, and I saw that headline. I'm like, okay, that's interesting. Uh, it seemed to be going really well for Chris. But, yeah. but you you left. it. would like to hear why.
0: I did. That was one of the big things at the Welcome Conference that they were kind of blown away with. They are like, you were on top of the world and you just walked away from it all. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, I mean, I did. I made the decision to change my life. Um, you know, I've been doing this for 30, 30 years, 30 plus years. And it was just the moment where, you know, my business partners, we'd gotten all new leases after pandemic. We'd done all the things that we needed to do. Everybody was setting in the right direction. And and it was the idea that the growth could be there. We set it up to grow. I just didn't want to do that. Mm. It was one of those things where I looked at it and I was like, we already have four going on five restaurants. I can't be at all of them when I want to be there. How many more do I want to do? And if we get into other cities, like, how can I... How can I give that staff there a part of me so they understand me? And it just – it was really hard. And so I made the decision. I was like, hey, guys, you know what? I You, you guys take it and go. Mm-hmm. And good luck. And But I have other things to focus on. And it was our first festival coming up after pandemic, so we hadn't had one in two years. And our team, there was three, four people that had done a festival with us before, um, but the rest hadn't. And so – I made that decision. I was like, I need to focus on this now. Yeah.
1: And I'll figure out what else there is in life. Because I think you need to reinvent yourself every once in a while. I think that's that's really key that you say the reinvention. It's just you're a creative guy, and you need to keep those creative juices flowing. Yeah. But also, walking away is challenging. I mean, it must have been your it's your identity, especially in Houston, which is such a great food city. And you'll hear later on this episode all all my thoughts on Houston uh, and my l- recent visit. But man, like, what's what's it like? Is there an emptiness? Is there a hole in your your life when you walk away from a restaurant group?
0: It, you know, it, it was really hard yeah At the beginning it Must was have been. it was mentally challenging um it was hard to think that I had left, and I felt like I left a lot of people behind, but I didn't you know and, and they're all here, they're all still working, they're all still doing their best, they're all still doing what they need to do um but now I just get to spread that joy with more people in the city
1: I love it and, and working in the on- on something to spoke yeah, yeah. Um, and that was that
0: was very you know. Cooking is cool. Running restaurants is fun and interesting. Saving lives
1: means something to me. Yeah. Well said. Let's talk about your cookbook, Cook Like a Local. Mm-hmm. We published it here at Clarkson Potter. And, and I never got to talk to you on the podcast uh, during yeah. – because it was like right before the pandemic happened and then that all happened. So you're finally here. It's been out for a few years, but yeah. I, I love the book. Thank you very much. And you're welcome. It's You put a lot of um, your own, obviously, personality. But if you walked into Underbelly, you saw all the farmers, the names, the photos on the wall – What does it mean to cook like a local? I just want to ask you that straight up. So
0: for me, it was at that point in time when we opened up Underbelly, right? It was the craziest idea of a restaurant to begin with, right? It was like, we're going to focus on the Underbelly was the side of things not seen, which is the food of Houston, right? All the diversity that exists into our city and the people that live there. And like, I spent a lot of time staging in like little mom and pop Thai places in a grocery store, um, Indian restaurants, Szechuan, like learning from the people that I truly love and they became my families. Um, and I became their family, which is even better. Um, and, you know, at, at that point, like when we did the menu, like I had to to somebody last night, every Tuesday, a thousand pounds deer came in and we broke that down, had to be ready for service by, or broken down, ready to go for whatever we we're going to use it for by Thursday, because three 250 pound hogs came in and then goats and lamb on Friday, fit, um, fish every day of the week, poultry on Saturday, whatever our, poultry farmer wanted to bring, whatever variety of chicken or guinea or duck he wanted. I was like, just bring me 20 of everything, 20 of something. Um, And then produce. I didn't really have a produce company except for lemons, limes, well, citrus, garlic, onions, mirepoix, Mm -hmm. and herbs. But everything else was just dropped off by our local farmers. You know, so you got one thing I learned is you got to be careful when someone says, I had a bumper crop of corn. Can you take a thousand years?
1: Yeah, that's a lot to to, yeah. to negotiate. It's, what are you doing with a thousand years of corn? I,
0: I took them to a lot of friends' restaurants and just <laughs> gave it to them. <laughs> yeah. It's really what I did. I took I would take sacks and bushels and just be like, here, yeah. just, just use it for service. Use it for whatever. It's on me. Have fun. Yeah. Because I couldn't tell farmers no. No. Um, and then we changed the menu every day. And so every day at 2 o'clock, one thirty, two o'clock, we all sat down as, you know, the kitchen staff, and we
1: talked you wrote about it. what are you going to cook? What are you going to do? How are you going to do this? Okay, let's walk through it. It's exhilarating, though, it was to, fun. to cook that way, especially when you get those 200-pound steers to come in, and you get to, like, actually use um, different parts in creative ways, right? I mean, well, that's— You have to. Yeah. You have to use the entire animal. That yeah.
0: was my point. It was, like, yeah, for the staff, it was this was a living being, and we need to make sure that we— Put it on the highest pedestal we can. And so you see the actual process of it all happening. So make sure we don't mess things up. How did you articulate this in the book? Um, It came through, you know, not so much of the whole animal thing. Yeah. But more of just like understanding people and places in your own city. Not so much Houston, but just anywhere you live. Right? You may not know the people. You may not know the food. But if you start to love that food, you just keep going back. Eventually you're going to have the conversation. Then the whys start to be asked. Like Well, tell me why. And then all of a sudden the friendship starts to happen. Then all mm-hmm. of a sudden the family starts to build. And all of a sudden you've got people all around you that don't look like you, that didn't grow up where you did. And they are your family. You do things with them all the time. And you get to learn the stories of why yeah. fish sauce is important, why gochujang is important, why, mm-hmm. you know, just pick anything that's important. Rice. Um, and so when we wrote the book, it was, it was broken up into categories yeah. like rice, corn, um, fish sauce and so it was a fun book to write we kind of just put those people in that book to give you an example of yeah hey this is who you need to go talk to this is
1: who you can learn from yeah don't just do it learn about it pick it up i'll link to the show notes pick the book up let me ask you about Houston in general yeah. i feel like it's it's a dynamic city Uh, food writers who know go there a lot and and fall into love fall in love with it which is me (laughs) case in point but um i want to get a sense for for folks who maybe think about houston and maybe the the broad terms the Mm -hmm. the houston astros beef um you know like texas stuff like it's not uh, a monolith and i'd love to get your take on your city how does it how do you reflect on it and represent it well i mean Houston's such a broadly it's just a large
0: city Right. And it's the fourth largest city in the country. It's a port city. It's a medical city. It's an oil city. And so when you get that, um, you don't get a lot of the European culture. Like there's probably, I don't know, four French restaurants in the city. Mm-hmm. You know, not like here where there's hundreds. Mm-hmm. Um, Italian, there's, there's of course, a lot of Italian. But um, you see more Vietnamese, Middle Eastern, Thai, um, Chinese. And it's some of the best food in the, you know that you'll ever have. And it's just, I had to explain it to somebody it was like, The way that New York has slice shops is how we have banh mi shops. Yes. Is how we have pho shops. And so, um, I mean, we have three Vietnamese restaurants within like 200 yards of our house. And so it's like that's everywhere. And so it's the people that make the city. And it's you know because the people are still cooking for their culture and the food of their culture and so it's so beautiful. Yeah, it's a, it's
1: a Vietnamese city, it's a Black city, it's, it's a Mexican American city. It's a we don't have an
0: ethnic majority.
1: Yeah, and when you not many cities can say that. Yeah, it, you can't, and um, you've got that the ocean, you've got water there, and you've got that uh, feeding into all the cultures. Yep,
0: the port. I mean, the largest port in the South, the medical is huge, oil is huge, and so you get all of these cultures that kind of deep dive into that or are a part of that.
1: Yeah. Well, well, listeners, stick around and listen to the second part of this interview or this this episode because I am uh, I'm going long about my love yeah. for Houston. Went to a people, bunch of places. Houston, and people, when they think Houston, they think steakhouses,
0: barbecue, or taco joints. And it is that to some extent, but every city really is that
1: to some extent. Definitely. Chris, do you, do you want to run a restaurant, though? tell me i mean do you, does, do you, does that pop into your head right now <laughs> it did for a little bit and i i you know my wife and i'll
0: go out to dinner and i look at it and i'm like i really miss this you know and, and our friend just opened a restaurant and he had so many struggles and it was so hard like he just couldn't catch a break it was like he'd hmm. start to do service and the power would go out oh, so they had to get the company and I, I and i'm just sitting there and i look at my i looked at him i was like i looked at Lindsay at first and i was like this is the part that I love. I love the chaos. I love to figure the chaos. When the sm- service is smooth, it's a little boring. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, yeah, when when the, when, the P&L is, when the P&L is up, it's a little boring. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it sounds odd, but, like, the chaos is what I truly love.
0: I love to be able to fix things, and I love to say, okay, let's do this, let's do this. Um, and he basically told my wife, he said, if Chris ever says that again, I will never speak to him. That's really funny. And so I was like, yeah, you're right.
1: And I, I do miss it, but I, I don't think I'd ever do it again. Wow. Here you heard it here. Yeah. I mean, I love it, Chris. I mean that's such an a it's it's you're firm on that. So well,
0: I'm, I'm fifty one. So if I opened a restaurant, I wouldn't take a day off until I was fifty six, you know, yeah. or felt comfortable with it. And uh that's I you know what? I've given a lot of my life to it and I figure there's other ways that I can give my life to it. Yeah. But I can go home and I can have instead of dinner service for four hundred, I can do a really killer dinner service
1: for two. Yeah, I bet. Lindsay uh, yeah. it appreciates that too.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I always, you know,
1: it's even when cooking for two. I still le- like take stuff to the neighbors because I'm like, I made it for twelve, so here. I bet you have some very appreciative neighbors. Yeah, um, they're, they're very good. When you say chaos menu, I just can't not think about the bear. Obviously, <laughs> the, co- the chaos cooking there, and, yeah. and and I'm not sure if you've watched the show. But, I have. Yeah, it was good. It was uh, really good. Yeah. You feel when you suck about the chaos, it, it definitely feeds the, 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 the narrative, especially season one. I mean, it really is part of the kitchen. It
0: was season one came out as when I was going through the decision to leave the industry or leave the restaurant. And I think we got through like four episodes, and I was like, I can't do this right now. Like, I just, because you still hear that the ticket machine mm-hmm. in your sleep.
1: And, mm-hmm.
0: and it was just one of those things like, I'm not ready for this right now. So we, we actually picked that up.
1: And then went right into season two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's I've heard this from many chefs on the show, and and it seems like it's maybe not for everyone right away. It, it's triggering. It, sounds, <laughs> it takes a
0: little bit, yeah. yeah.
1: But I mean, if if that's the scenario, then it actually
0: gives the diner or the people that aren't in the restaurant business an actual real look into it. Yeah, and I think that's hard for chefs and people that are in the industry to watch at first because like that's too little. It's a little too close. Because mm-hmm. a lot of shows, you can be like. I mean, they kind of got it right, yeah. but this they really got a lot of it right. So.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I hope it's a new appreciation for diners. I think listeners of the show will appreciate going to restaurants and realizing what's happening back there. Is, yeah, I don't know if I can handle with just normal people being yes-chefing people, but that, yeah, it's that's, a little bit much. Or <laughs> drinking out of, like, the delis and, yeah. and, and even call, saying the word deli or yeah. saying the way Paco Jet. Like, let's leave that <laughs> lexicon for yeah. the chefs. Let's not cosplay <laughs> yeah. chef life.
0: I, I'm not going to watch a veterinarian show and start busting
1: out with, you know, terms on how to save a poodle. Like, it's not it, going to It's not going to happen. Let's stay in our lanes. Funny, yeah. <laughs> Chris. On this is taste, we ask guests about their discerning taste. So to close this interview, here's a little rapid fire, All right. fast and furious taste check. Are you ready? Yeah, let's go. The best morning pastry with coffee.
0: Ooh, um, well, a cannoli.
1: Yes. I mean, I just, I just had one with a coffee a few a little while ago. So it's, yeah, it was perfect. It's, it's and especially before nine a.m. I will, I will crush yeah. a cannoli. First time I've heard that answer. I love that. Best dessert. Ooh.
0: I mean, I'm an ice cream freak. So uh, let's just leave it at that. All terms in general of ice cream, I'm good with. Are you like purist? Or are you stoner mixing guy? No, I like it. I like crunchy stuff. I like I like textures. I love that. Me too. The best bread, sourdough. No, the banh mi bread.
1: Yes. What's 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 it about U.S. banh mi bread? I've been to Vietnam. The bread isn't is different, but yeah. U.S. banh mi bread.
0: If you get it right with the rice flour that's in it, and it has that sharp glassy texture, like I think that when you like when you get a really good bond mi why it's still in the wrapper, you can feel it, and so you got to kind of crush the ends before you take it out of the paper. Yeah. But if it doesn't, it's like, <laughs> I'm not sure
1: I really want it. It feels a little bit old. Yeah, it doesn't make. It feels sound. Like it, it was. It wasn't the right thing. It wasn't the right thing, and, mm-hmm. and you do your own little press sandwich version. Yeah. The grip is important. I like to break it up. Yeah, into that. Your favorite cut of meat? Uh, Bobette. Why so?
0: I like the idea of texture, right? I think it has a, a nice chew to it, but it also, it when it's cut, it comes so marbled, and it's just delicious. It's like the best fajita meat you can have, mm-hmm. right? And without too much too, It's still steaky, and it's soft and supple, but it's got flavor
1: because the muscle has been worked oh my god i had the best fajita meat at neem Fuzz when i was there i'll talk so about good, it later. right <laughs> oh my god they 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 got the the ratios right yeah. It was like such good fajita meat mm. um your favorite cookbook of all time
0: uh it would be the one that's still on my shelf at my house um <laughs> it's what my parents gave me in 1978 and it's the only thing that i've held on to my entire life
1: and it's the mickey mouse cookbook <laughs> They've got to have a killer pancake recipe in there. Right? Yeah, they that. do.
0: It's on a pedestal, too. It literally is sitting on a pedestal. Not even my book's on a <laughs> pedestal. Like, it's just the only book that, like, there's just the ends of books, and then that one sits up. And so when um, I buy them on, like, eBay or wherever I can get them, um, and so when a friend, a chef friend that has a kid, um,
1: I that's my present. To them. That's such a great gift. I love that. Uh, a favorite recent cookbook discovery? Ooh. Uh... Listen to your vegetables by Sarah Grunberg Yeah, at Monteverde. Yeah, she's great. She's a fantastic chef. Uh, a few more. Your favorite chef in America right now? I'm gonna go with uh, hmm,
0: either Sarah or Ashley Christensen. Oh yeah, Ashley, of course. Or Ryan Pruitt at Pesh. I mean, those are yep. three restaurants that if I'm going to that city, I'll eat there uh, at least twice. Yeah, because I just there's such good cooks. Um, yeah. And so I'm excited to see what Jason Stanhope is doing. when, uh, You know, he just left Fig in Charleston, mm-hmm. so I'm excited to see what he's doing. But Fig is one of the best restaurants in the
1: country. Yeah, I agree fully so. with that one. Uh, This there's new there's new blood at Fig if he's left. Uh, There will be. Yeah, I'm sure. I, yeah. I
0: don't I, I don't know if they've named a new chef or not. But uh, Jason just left uh, to go do his thing three weeks ago.
1: Wow, cool. So, yeah, I'll be excited to after 15 it. years. Yeah, it's a great being chef. a chef there. Yeah, it's so. a great chef. A couple more. Your favorite vegetable? Celery. Um. I get it, tell me why. Um, texture, flavor.
0: Um, I love the seed. Yeah <laughs> celery seed. in things is one of the most beautiful flavors, um, but just a nice, like simple, savory celery salad with some apples and jalapenos and a little lime juice. It's perfect. Um, I just had somebody that did a hot, pickled celery, so it was like a spicy pickle of some. It was delicious. In Torshi, it's fantastic. I, I get it because it's clearly for a, a skilled chef, you're going to be able to do some cool things. Yeah. I mean, or even a carrot is also, like,
1: because yeah. you can boil it, fry it, mash it, you yeah. know, steam it, whatever you want. It's the most versatile thing. C- carrots is. are carrots are there. Celery gets less, especially when, like, you think about seasonality with celery. Yeah. So, celery can have a season.
0: Yeah, when you get that, when we get celery in Houston, it is so flavorful. Yeah. You know, it doesn't grow like the grocery store celery by any means, but the leaves and everything yeah, about it is
1: nice. Love that. Last one, your favorite sandwich. Ooh, man. Uh, that's going to be a muffalada. Excellent. Do you make these yourself or do you go to restaurants?
0: I go to restaurants. I've got a good friend, Lucas McKinney, at Josephine's in Houston that he used to work with me. And he has this, like, olive oil soak that he does on the bread. Yep. And puts it together and wraps it and lets it all sit, you know, so you get that olive salad that just kind of soaks into the bread. And it's, like, it's not ready for 24 hours, right? He makes a sandwich and lets it sit in the cooler. And it just, when you eat it and you warm it, you toast it? Oh. Yeah. Because he, he was always like, you want to toast it or not? I'm like, yeah, toast it, man.
1: What's the meat choice in a muffalada? What makes it good? Uh,
0: capicola, mortadella,
1: uh, salami. It's a Jersey deli sandwich. Yeah, it's perfect. It's just the best, but it's with the tamponade, right? Yep. You've got to have the tamponade in there. Yep. So it's like a really olive oil. It's very Italian, obviously. It's just an olive salad, yeah. It's an olive salad with olive oil soaked. Yeah, lots of pickled celery in it. With pickled celery. <laughs> there you go. Bring it back. Chris Shepard, thank you so much for joining us no, today. Thanks for having me, Matt. It's an honor. really. Hi, Matt. Liza, what is up?
2: Not much. I want to talk to you about Houston, Texas.
1: Houston, Texas. We are continuing this series. I was able to go down to Texas with Travel Texas. Nice folks, you know, hooked me up with a car are like go around the state, find some cool things. And we had we've spoken about Austin and now we're talking about Houston. And my experience with Houston, um, I've been there. I, this was my third trip. And I last was there when we were doing Koreatown. I did an event with Chris Shepard at his restaurant, Underbelly. And we, uh, you know, had a great time there. Uh, But this trip was all pretty much new restaurants. And I think Houston is this dynamic. It refreshes every few years. And it's truly one of the most exciting food cities in America That's no understatement, the diversity of culture there between black community and uh, Latino community and Vietnamese, like amazing, amazing um, and strong Vietnamese population, Uh, Mexican-American population, too. And I had some incredible lamb uh, dip tacos that we'll get into. And I think when you go to Houston, um, you know, there's no zoning there. Which what is do you mean? Like literally when you drive down the street, there like might be a power plant and then a uh, restaurant and oh. then a home um, so it, 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 creates this, like everything kind of flows together. Um, and it feels, uh, it's different than a lot of communities and, um, it's not a good thing or a bad thing. I can't cast a judgment. I'm not trying to be like an urban planner guy here, but I do think it allows opportunity to open things maybe more affordably. And I think that's why it's such an attraction for folks from, you know, immigrants, new folks to America, move to Houston. But there's also a really like, there's a really strong, um, cultural um, backbone uh, between the Rothko Chapel and uh, the Menil Museum and just really there's been a lot of money invested in the arts there so when you go to Houston you can definitely eat your ass off and and just eat the most incredible food uh, all day every day or you can go out to the Johnson Space Center which I did and holy shit they have rockets there.
2: Do you get to fly one?
1: Not no flying uh, available. Um, but I did see uh, one of the space shuttles was there um, and several of the Apollo uh, pods were there and like gotta go to that Johnson Space Center. It, like it's a re- Houston's a great city to visit for like a couple days or even a week um, because we'll get into the food. But there's other things to do, too.
2: Yeah, I love that lowdown as someone that's never been to Houston. I think it's helpful to think about the pace of a city and the way that you experience it. So just thinking about all of those different kinds of businesses and homes and restaurants together in a jumble is is cool. And also obviously space is cool.
1: Yeah. Space is cool. But let me get into some picks. I think, um, we're going to go through a number of places I was able to visit. And again, I've been here a few times, so I had, um, a lot of new experiences and, and really blown away by the quality of the cooking, um, Kui Ba is the first place I went to. Uh, just had to start with pho hmm. and Vietnamese cuisine because it really is one of the, the strongest predominant cultures in Houston. Um, I later on went to a Viet Cajun place and I'll talk about that. Uh, had some bumba huay, a bun cha, and I had a smoked brisket pho that um, for lunch was just the perfect elixir. I just come from Austin and had a ton of other foods. I needed something to like cleanse me, but I wanted something interesting. Holy shit, that was good.
2: Restorative.
1: Restorative, yeah.
2: I love that. Where uh, else? Um,
1: so many more places. I I, I really want to like like tick these off. But one is uh Trill Burger. Great name. Great name. Uh the rapper Bun B, he's along with Pimp C is in the, the group UGK. Real Houston legend. Um definitely anyone who's into Southern Hip Hop knows Bun B runs that town. He also runs that burger scene. It was a fucking really great burger.
2: Tell me about the burger. Is it a smash burger? Is it a thicker patty?
1: Absolute smash burger, absolute perfect crust with the smash caramelized onions. I really love um, the concept too. It just like you order, obviously like the fast food style, but there's great music, great branding, a, a, a fridge full of of orange soda that they make there. It's like their version of Fanta uh, or Fega or wherever you are. The orange soda and uh, it's really great fries, and and Lily, like, they're putting it all together. I did not see Bun B there. I was kind of disappointed. I would have loved to have hung out with Bun B.
2: But I feel like if you can't hang out with them, having good fries is a good consolation because not all burger places have good fries. I feel like that can be like the <laughs> fatal flaw.
1: It can be an absolute fatal flaw. Let's continue on this journey um, to Temo. Let's talk about that place. Best New Chef, Food new wine. Uh, Have you heard that name at all? No, I haven't. Yeah, it's great. So Emmanuel Chavez and Megan Mall, um, a couple, um, run this restaurant that is based around corn and nixtamalization. It's a tasting only, uh, I believe it's like $125 um, for six to seven courses. BYOB in a strip mall across from like it seemed like maybe like some kind of factory and there was like ball fields next door. They share a wall with a church. Wow! So that's why they have a BYOB no liquor license. Again, this idea of Houston having a sprawl and like kind of the zoning, uh, really fascinating backdrop. Uh, you walk in and you you're hit with that smell of industrialization. They have the um, the grind, you know, the the mill right there in the restaurant, and just you're hit by it. But wow, really, just incredible. Um, meal like i i had uh a variety of of corn um you know i had of course corn tortillas um you know with some barbacoa i had some uh, a quesadilla that was amazing and i just think that you know emmanuel chavez is somebody that we should really be looking at closely like editors here at penguin Random house like give this guy a cookbook
2: pay attention pay attention
1: to this name it's amazing but worth booking in advance i i, I thought Um, well-regarded. It's plenty been written about, about this restaurant, but amazing place.
2: Yeah. I would love to go there. And can we like go back to the, the church wall liquor license situation is it that they don't have a liquor license because they're kind of connected to this church or they're so close to it that they can't get one.
1: Exactly. And like, they were actually having a service. We like walked out of the meal and I could hear like gospel music, um, being sung, uh, by the by the congregants. And yeah, they aren't they I don't think they could they can actually zone it for um or they, there's no zoning, but they couldn't get a liquor license. But
2: yeah, it's kind of cool, though, to be able to do a tasting menu like in that kind of way. But bring your own. Yeah booze makes it like a little bit more affordable and it gives yeah. it like a different kind of vibe, and I like the idea of being able to hear gospel during my meal,
1: yeah, totally um unique, maybe only in Houston kind of vibe there, yeah um a couple uh, I, w- I was at this restaurant three chilies in Aldine, which is like a northern ish um neighborhood a uh, very Mexican neighborhood, and I' hit up Jose relalat, my friend who's the Texas editor a taco editor for Texas Monthly. So I was like, yo, man, like, I'm in these t- cities. Where should I go? And he recommended this place. And the lamb barbacoa, um, holy cow, consomme with chickpeas in it, which is cool. Cool. Uh, I'd never had chickpeas in, in that kind of context. Um, I, you know, they're doing, like, this, like, traditional whole roasted lamb, picking it off the the, the bone, putting them on your plate with the tortillas, of course, flour, um, Texas is all about the flour and we can't repeat enough how great flour tortillas and how that really is the thread of the Mexican cooking in Texas is that flour tortilla and it being fresh and made with like great you know care and just not the, the ones we get here in New York.
2: Yeah I think the wheat is also a big part of it like this soft white wheat that is popular in Texas for tortillas. Yep. Is it White Lily that's the brand? I'm not quite sure but Carmelo
1: is the one I've ordered from online yeah
2: Carmelo does great I think they're based in um Kansas Kansas City uh white Lily I think is just a flower brand it's not Sorry, a tortilla right? I follow you
1: now that's what you're saying
2: but I'm not I'm not even sure if that's the name so we shouldn't go too far down this point the point that matters is that the flower tort- tortillas are where it's at
1: yep yeah, and I want to continue this this journey um, I was Take able to me. go to nimpas on navigation This is my return visit, and I think I went there. My first trip to Houston was probably like twelve years ago, and I went there, um, and it's in the East End. I made this pilgrimage, and I met with amazing chef Alex Padilla, and you know Alex and I, we we visited and heard about the history of Nympha's. Nympha's is, I would say, probably debatable statement because this is not something you quote unquote invent but they invented the fajita as we know it today the restaurant fajita
2: whoa there that's their claim to fame pretty
1: much it's like the idea that the sizzling platter of of meat of beef and vegetables and in their case chorizo comes out sizzling you're offered this beautiful flour of tortilla and you can make your own you make your own you know, make your own tacos the way that they do it at chi chi's you know yeah. The East coast. Um, but the way it was founded by Nympha Rodriguez in, uh, in 1973, uh, it started as a flour tortilla factory and then became a restaurant and is you know, moved on through the family. And we 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 talked uh, a lot with um, Alex about the history. Um, I hope to have him on the show sometime if he's up in New York. A really fascinating guy. Um, but we had pork ribs also, like, sizzling on the platter, and I just think this is the place that you want to go to in Houston if you want, like, to have the perfect piece of Mexican, like, grilled beef. Mm. There's, like, a marinade that they're doing there, and the way they're, like, they're using, like, a really, like, a rib cut, like, a ribeye. So tender, cooked perfectly medium rare. I mean, it's, like, they do it so many times that they got it down. It's challenging.
2: I love that. And I also, um, the fajita effect, like originating the fajita is such a claim to fame. I feel like on that alone, the sizzling platter being delivered to your table, you need to experience that as it was originally intended.
1: I agree. And I, I think that they have queso there as well. You can go just queso, queso fundito.
2: Just straight queso.
1: Yeah, dude. Just like dipping chips in queso. Are you kidding me? The best. It's like it's like fajitas and, and queso and, and, and you know, he's got mixology going on there and, it's a cool place. I highly recommend it. Um, down the street um, via Arcos, which is a legendary breakfast taco place. We haven't talked about breakfast tacos. Um, and certainly not just an Austin thing. Uh, if you talk to Jose a lot, he'll he's written extensively about Austin's claim to the breakfast tacos, kind of BS. But we went there and it's all about the potato. The papa. Mm. Bringing that in. The potato is always in it. And it was like, talk about a hangover food. Is like flour tortilla stuffed with Uh, lightly scrambled eggs like like, nice and like fluffy and potatoes and bacon
2: are the potatoes spiced at all or they're just in there with everything else and you have the salsa going on and that's enough
1: roasted, spiced Mm. not a throwaway carb but actually done with intention great question
2: I love a potato taco. I, you know, I'm not an egg eater, but I grew up eating potato tacos a lot at a place um, called Tacos Por Favor in L.A. Oh, uh, right on. Yeah. But th- that sounds great altogether.
1: Yeah. a Potato breakfast is good. Um, I tend to go with, more with just the protein. The potato fills me up a bit. Mm-hmm. This is my take on it. But I, I, I like that we both like have our opinions about what we would like in a taco. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like that. So that was, that uh, those are both on the East End. I like those, like those two places. Um, I have a couple more, uh, picks and I have to, I haven't really talked about coffee. Uh, but Blacksmith is a, is a longtime favorite in, in Houston. It's not necessarily for the coffee, which is really nice and they do great roasting there, but this biscuit pre- presentation was super impressive. Like a biscuit, mm. but like as a main course
2: was Tell me about it? was it tall and
1: flaky? Tall and flaky, really like f- quite rich, um, but and then served with two side condiments. One is a raspberry jam. And the other was an apricot f- creme fraiche, like half and half, mm. um, and then like butter. So there's like actually three little carafes that you have, and you have your choice. So you like each bite, you're like making that choice. Am I going butter and raspberry? Am I going, you know, apricot and creme and butter? And like it's just this delightful, exp- like having your iced coffee there or having some kind of cortado or whatever, and just like having this perfectly plated biscuit. Wow.
2: Yeah, that sounds like the dream coffee accompaniment. I feel like biscuits are not a common thing you can get at coffee shops here in New York.
1: It doesn't uh, happen. And, like, they're all made to order. They're all plated. They're, like, definitely warm. Like, so it's not, like, point and scoop and stuff into the sleeve. The way we often have scones and biscuits. But um, I was mentioning earlier when we were talking about Austin about how this cookie on the plate was a thing that was at Birdie's. But here it was, like, a biscuit on a plate. And, like— you know, let's just do that. Let's actually like serve, and if it's nine dollars, great. But like serve it with intent. Definitely. Are you listening, industry? Do like a fucking cookie on a plate. It's so good. Um, my last Houston wreck, and there was many. In this great forty-eight hours I had in Houston. Just love the city. I just, I again, I can't recommend going there for culture and food, crawfish and noodles. Mm. As you can imagine, it's via Cajun. And it was amazing. I had really good shrimp with Old Bay. Um, I had some salt and pepper squid, um, and it was like just this communal environment. I, I actually went out with uh, with my my designer for my book, Robert Diaz. Shout out to Robert. And it was just like a lovely time to to you know experience um, Viet Cajun in in Houston. It's it's such a strong population there.
2: Yeah, do they have a yacaman, or is that only like a New Orleans Viet Cajun thing?
1: I didn't see that on the menu, so I I, I think this was this was leaning. Um, a lot of it was actually Chinese inspired too. There was like some Sichuan dishes on the menu too. Mm. Um, I also went to Lee's down the street, which is like a famous banh mi um bakery, Lee's Bakery. Um and I had a on me there. Uh but it was cool hanging around that neighborhood and it was like a nice end to my forty eight hours in Houston and I just I can't wreck it enough.
2: You did all of that in forty eight hours?
1: Yeah man. Wow. Well, I mean, this isn't like past tense, yeah. This
2: Committed is- to the game. I appreciate it. Well,
1: that. you know what? When when Travel Texas is like, hello Matt, do you want to come down to Texas and check out the scene? I'm not like going to like one place and going to the pool. This is like the work, Eliza.
2: Yeah, you're doing. You're in it.
1: We're putting in the work. No, I mean, I really, I do. Um, also, oh, Chris Shepard, I, I got to, I got to catch up with him and Lindsay, his partner, Lindsay Brown, and we talked about Southern Smoke, uh, their uh, nonprofit that is really doing cool things. We're gonna have Chris on the on the show soon to talk about his experience in Houston. I'll definitely cross reference some of these. Uh, he was a big Three Chili's fan as well. Um, yeah, I could go on forever. To be honest, I love this place.
2: Well, I really want to go, and I'm looking forward to hearing more about it.
1: Great catching up. This is Taste is hosted by Eliza Abarbanel and me, Matt Rodbar. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com. And make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things that are happening.